This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast which serves you terrific interviews over a fat lunch. As a greedy man and long-standing restaurant critic, I've always found that a conversation over good food is a conversation worth listening to. And I think you'll find the proof is in the pudding today as I sit down with the tallest man in showbiz, TV creator, star of Pointless and now novelist, it's Richard Osman. Be careful saying you want me to do a line at some point, they'll edit that. <laughs> That's that, all it will be. I'll use that as the trailer. So almost all the episodes in this series of Out to Lunch have been recorded in lockdown style, which means over Zoom with a takeaway. But for this one, well, we're actually in a real restaurant. Oh, joy. We have come to the Corinthia Hotel, just off the embankment in the centre of London, uh, where the great chef Tom Kerridge, uh, you can listen to his episode of Out to Lunch. Tom has a restaurant here called the Kerridge Bar and Grill. It's full of big, meaty dishes of the sort that Tom does really well. My guest, Richard Osman, eats anything, which is great because Tom cooks a lot of stuff. Uh, it's a big, solid, meaty, chunky restaurant. It really is. And so is, so is my guest. So it seemed like a perfect fit. Let's get inside. Richard. Come on in. Do we do, we, we do that? Namaste, welcome. Thank you very much. It's nice not being here before. Well, welcome. I've, there's never been a microphone that didn't need to be raised a couple of inches when I sat down. <laughs> Ever. Now, um, first things first... Welcome. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I should say it's a bag of Maltesers. Because you have, I mean, maybe you don't actually love them that Are we much. recording already? Oh, yeah, we're Great. recording. We I love Maltesers so much. <laughs> I just want to put that on record. Yeah. My, my dream is, is, is a packet of half Maltesers, half minstrels, called Maltinstrels, which is not Revels, but it's, you know, it's just the two best bits of Revels just in one bag. That shouldn't be beyond the wit of man. No, it shouldn't be. I mean, I mean you, come on. You have said that you go to the same restaurants all the time and yes. you order exactly the same yeah. thing. But you haven't been here before. I've not been here before. To eat. No. So is this a nice prospect or is it in some way actually a bit, oh, I've got to go to somewhere I don't know? Well, the beauty is, of course, you can look online, can't you, these days, and you can see exactly what's on the menu. So I'm, I'm happy with that. There's always something on every menu I like. As long as there's one thing. I have the palate of a, of a nine-year-old boy. Uh, essentially, but as long as I find the one thing I like, then I'll go to, back to that restaurant forever and ever and ever. This is Blaine, you'll be serving uh, us today. Blaine, nice how are you? Good, good, good afternoon, you. gentlemen. Oh, um, so here we have uh, new COVID procedures. No, right. um, this oh, is oh actually, that sounds delicious. This is, <laughs> this is our electric hand sanitizer. Feel free to use it whenever you want throughout the meal. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. This, they, could, they could use this little sanitizer thing. You could fill that with a nice reduction or something. You could, so you just took it over your bowl and it would squirt without Beautiful. and it would immediately put Blaine out of out of work wouldn't it no nothing no. could put Blaine out of work <laughs> you, know, you don't put that sort of charm out of work anytime soon do you do you not no no, no not at all oh, you've also said you know you've got a, the palate of a nine year old yeah. you're not a, you don't you describe yourself as not a very adventurous eater yeah for sure so you know if I was to try and just force you into something a little out of your comfort zone? No. I mean, the whole point of your comfort zone is it's comfortable, right? Yeah. 
I like to, I, I'm either in my comfort zone or I'm so near my comfort zone I can still get the Wi-Fi signal. Right. Essentially, I don't like. Uh, I won't. I won't step any further away. Otherwise, why have a comfort zone? That's absolutely so. True. In life, yeah. In relationships, in work, and stuff like that, by all means, leave your comfort zone. I think that's really strong and powerful advice. Mm-hmm. But in t- some things like food, come on, stay in your comfort zone. Why not? Well, should we should we see where your comfort zone is if yeah. you order first? Well, I was thinking of having the omelette. Is that insane? No, it's absolutely not. Because it's quite it's a big it's a big old thing for lunch, right? Oh yeah, I'm I mean, guessing it's good though, Blaine. Absolutely, that's probably our top seller. Signature. Yeah. There we go. The gla- this is the glazed omelette lobster do- lobster yeah. thermidor. Yeah, which is for anybody who's a complete train spotter, it's a bit of an old Gary Rhodes classic. Exactly. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kerry just nicked it. Um, no, it's a, oh, an homage. Typical carriage. Yeah, good. Honestly, Bloody thief. Nicked little it. thief he is. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought that sounded. Um, I thought that sounded good. So I'll start with the potted Cornish crab with fresh pickled cucumber and black sesame cracker. What about the main? Uh, can I have the duck, please? And I'll have because look, pig's cheek pie. Wow. With clotted cream mash, crispy black pudding, devil sauce. Oh, that sounds good as well. A defibrillator. But yeah, yeah, maybe I'll. But I'll, I'll stick with the duck because then we have something CPR. different. CPR. Yeah, that's personally my favourite. Yeah. Uh, oh, now Being I feel bad. Boy. Should we get some garlic roasted hispy cabbage? Uh, you can do if you want. I won't be joining you, but mm. p- but please have it on the table so I feel like I've looked at it. Okay, fine. L- looking at vegetables is that's pretty much how I get my five a day. Uh, okay. And lastly, before I leave, you can I get you any drinks, water, or a beer, glass of wine? I'm not really a lunchtime drinker, but I'm 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 happy to enter into the spirit of a of a podcast if you if you're drinking. Well, a glass of wine. Red or white? Yeah, I'll have a glass of red, whatever you recommend. Um, actually, whatever you recommend. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go, that's better. Um, I'll pair them with the, um, oh. with the food for you. Mm. Okay. Sparkling or still? Uh, sparkling for me, please. And for me. Thank you very Thank much. You, Is wine a thing? Not really. No, I like it. Fun. I like drinking it, but I know very little about it. Well, you, I remember, remember once we had um, Mel Brooks on um, the Clive Anderson talk show, uh, and Mel before the show says, um, can I do a thing? I've got a thing I want to do. Uh, he says, I've just started learning about wine. Can you do me like a blind wine tasting? And the producer's like, um, okay. I mean, listen, it's Mel Brooks. You, yeah, you, sure. do, you, you do what you want. So anyway, they got in this wine. And uh, Clive says, um, Mel, um, listen, I'm springing this upon you. I wonder, you've, you've started learning about wine. And Mel goes, oh, not really. You know, a bit. And he goes, um, can we do a blind wine tasting? And so he gives Mel the um, blindfold. He puts it on. So pours Mel this wine. Now, this goes on for... Genuinely, it's 25 minutes he does this next bit for. Right? He's <laughs> sipping, he's just taking a little sip and going, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> he goes, ah, mm, yeah, interesting. I think, ah, you're trying to trick me. I know what you want me to say, <laughs> but I think actually, oh, I don't know who chose this, but you've been very, very clever. Very clever, and I think you thought you were going to trick me, but I don't think you are. So about 25 minutes 25, are you sitting in the yeah. gallery going how the fuck do we edit this well we're thinking this is high tariff Mel but you know you're Mel Brooks so he's going yeah and then he just goes so there's sort of 25 minutes and he goes okay 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 I'm ready I think this wine is a red <laughs> and that was and the confidence to work 25 minutes towards that punchline was brilliant I think we have bread <gasps> bread yeah, okay, talking. Let so, me move my Maltesers, Blaine, forgive me. You can, you can save them for later, I wasn't... Oh, I'll be know. doing that, yeah, don't you, don't you worry, they'll be, yeah. So, we have a homemade bread, we have a dark treacle bread on the left, then on the right we have a brown sourdough from mm. Coons Head Farm, uh, followed with a salted butter, and you both have a cheese gougere with, finished with parmesan. 
Marvellous. Wow. Thank that you. Sounds amazing. What was it about TV in the 70s and 80s, those shows, you know, Superstars, which you absolutely Oh, my adore. God, Superstars, the best format of all time. Why has nobody ever brought that back? They do. They bring it back endlessly. Um, so, you know, they, 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 that I loved. Well, the thing is, there just wasn't anything else, you know? And so it was such a common little experience. Uh, and it brought me... It made me see places in the world I'd never see. made me see things I'd never see, you know, sport I would never have been able to watch. So it just opens up the entire world, you know? Not living in London or a big city in a Manchester or a Liverpool where you get to see, you know, so much. You don't see anything when you're in Sussex. You know, you don't see the world at all, particularly. And telly, suddenly you're seeing everything, the impossible glamour. You know, they'd be at TV centre sometimes. I couldn't imagine such a thing. By the way, it's a disgrace that they've turned that into flats, but that's, a, that's, a, that's another podcast. I was there yesterday. <laughs> were you? Mm. And clearly your mum didn't say, go outside and play. You were just... You no, I mean, I did go outside and play because I lived on a nice estate and there's loads of kids my age. It was all kind of young families. And so, you know, I'd play football non-stop. Um, but... You know, then I'd come in and watch telly. And it sounds ridiculous, I spent my whole life, I loved television. But I'd never knew anyone who worked it. It weirdly hadn't occurred to me that you could work in it. Really? That it that didn't say, you didn't think, there must be all these jobs. Somebody I mean, must I knew that, write this, somebody must film this, somebody must... I mean, I obsessively looked at credits and see, saw people's names and thinking, oh my God, these people are like gods to me. But it hadn't occurred to me, and I, I just saw an advert in the paper for a job in telly went to the interview and the, on day one I just thought oh, of course you idiot this of course is... you're born for this but, but this is the thing I mean it is one of the most peculiar things I work across a lot of different media so yeah. I'm in print I'm in radio I do books people who work in newspapers love newspapers yeah. and say it people who work in radio love radio yeah, and yeah, say yeah, it yeah. you know where I'm going with this I don't know exactly you? where you're going and I have always been staggered by the number of people I come across in TV who are dismissive of the medium that mm. they work in. Yeah, there's certainly a group of them. I mean, fortunately, they're not the people I work with. I'm not far enough through my career that I work with the people who... Like I, I love working with, yeah. And I work in entertainment and quiz and comedy and things like that, where actually it's run by people who really enjoy what they're doing. But the posture end of television, the documentaries, the news, the current affairs and things like that, I think are often run by people who don't like it. But the people I work with tend to be... TV lovers and format lovers and creative, you know, people excited about what could we do next and what's the next show we could do and how could we do it and will people love it and all that stuff. So that's the side of telly I've always worked in. Uh, but yeah, there's uh, the kind of more highbrow uh, television becomes, the less people seem to give a toss about it who work in it. And that's unfair to lots of people, by the way. Oh, look, our starters oh, have arrived. Oh, there. Okay, here we Thank you so much. Lobster Thermidor. Crikey. And for you, Jay, we have your potted crab. Uh, paprika glaze pickled cucumbers and wowzers thank you Blaine oh, that's amazing do you want me to do a line at some point be careful saying do you want me to do a line at some point they'll edit that <laughs> that's that, all it will be I'll use that as the trailer <sighs> bloody TV radio podcasting yeah, exactly. people whenever you're filming on telly I'll just say, I'll just, I'll just say an aeroplane's coming over and then we can yeah. then we can just carry on filming um, like we had a pigeon in the studio the other day and so long as you say there's a pigeon in the studio, you're fine, because then if it flies across, everyone's like, oh, yeah, there really is a pigeon in the studio. <laughs> OK. You went to Planet 24. Yeah. And one of the shows you came up with was Survivor. Yeah. Explain what, it, what the idea was. Well, Sur did, well, Survivor was the first ever reality show, really. It's, I, this sounds so weird, because, I mean, I, I feel partly responsible for the whole a huge amount of Western culture now, uh, which, which maybe hasn't um, worked out as it might do. But I was in the Edinburgh Festival, I went up to the Edinburgh Festival and I saw um, 
the play We Clo, you know, Hell is Other People, Sartre. Right. right. So I was thinking about that. And then um, Charlie Parsons at, at Planet, they'd made a desert island show with um, Joanna Lumley. She was stranded on a desert island. So. Oh, yes. And he said, right. can we do anything? And I thought, why don't we do a show where there was someone who worked at Planet who I thought was hopeless, but he was senior, right? And I was really thinking about that. I was thinking, you're, you are surrounded by such talented underlings who are doing all your work for you and you're taking the credit. And it made me think, how do you get rid of people? You know, how can you have a meritocracy? And I thought, well, look, if we were all on a desert island and that guy was there and all the people working for him were there, and at the end of the first week when everyone happened to be sort of, you know, building things and kind of building society, what if at the end of that week you got to vote somebody off, the person who was the most useless person, the person you, you, you liked the least? And I thought, well, he would be the first to go. And I thought, well, that's a fascinating idea. So why don't you do that on a desert island? Put 20 people on there, build a society, and at the end of each week you vote off the, the, the least useful person so, so that becomes Survivor and it didn't become Survivor until I, I'd left like three years before it was even uh, on telly but yeah then Big Brother of course takes the voting off mechanism and then X Factor Pop Idol take off the voting off mechanism it's just a bloom debate yeah. essentially but on a, on, on, on a desert island one of the amazing things I remember the first series of Big Brother is that all the people who are on it had no idea they were on Big Brother yeah exactly they, they didn't know what it was to become. Yeah. They just thought they got locked in a room and they had no yeah. idea what was going on outside. And funnily enough, I was at Endemol when that began, so I'd, although I wasn't a survivor, I got to do Big Brother, which was, which was great. Um, so, yeah, it was extraordinary telly. It was like an absolute revolution and nothing's really been the same since, is the truth. And it's hard now to remember quite how revolutionary those first few series were. There's obviously a critique now of reality TV mm. that it's ugly and deforms mm. people's expectations. Yeah. You're, you're not of that view. No, not at all. I think, you know, the history of Big Brother, in fact, most shows, the history of it is, is the bullies get found out and the underdogs win, almost always. And it's because the critique of that comes from people who don't, who, who don't think that people are very clever and don't think people really understand what they're watching. And viewers of re those reality shows are so incredibly attuned to every nuance of human behaviour um, and they say, oh, no, but it's faked. It's all faked. And you think, I'll tell you what was faked. All of those incredibly hallmark documentaries they made in the 70s and 80s where some guy with a camera pointed it at them and then edited it for six months. Yeah. You know, that's what was, that's what was faked. And actually, if you're watching a 24-hour stream of something, you put them in different situations, but that's life. But you get what people's personalities are. And that whole generation, for, for good or for ill, are incredibly good at spotting authenticity incredibly good and it's because they've grown up watching all of this stuff but I would say and it's hard to point out examples to the contrary the buddies get found out the underdogs win lessons are learned it's incredibly moral telly now there's amazing shows now you know Love Island you know, whatever you think about it it's a brilliant bit of telly you know it is a brilliant bit of telly um, but I, I honestly think that, gen that generation really understands human nature in a way that uh, the critics of that do you think that's had an don't. impact on our expectations of politics do you know what? I was, I was, uh, I did it. They, there was a big thing at the Labour Party conference, and they said, would, "Listen, would you come and do a, like an interview?" And in there's like a dinner, and we're interviewing a few people. And I said, "Yeah." And I'm not party political in any way, but I said, "I'll come down." And that's one of the things I said. I said, "Look," I said, "Corbyn owes, uh, owes Big Brother a great debt because the one thing that younger generation values above all is authenticity and as someone who's true to themselves and they recognise they can just smell it on somebody it's, you know they, they know when you're not faking it and you know whether, whether that's good or bad in that context you know that was the thing and, but 
that's why in politics now that authenticity you know Trump for all, all, all the terrible things about him he's authentic at least you know he, he really is that awful you know he's not putting it on that's, that's who, that's you who he is you can tell what he is that's who he is when he wakes up in the morning and you know people value that above pretty much anything I think Creedy Carver duck breast oh, with a wow. duck hash brown. That looks good. And then for you, Joe, your pink cheek pie. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you very wow. much indeed. Thank you so much. So on your side, obviously you've got the duck breast, which is being beautifully carved. Yeah, and then it's gorgeous. the duck hash. Which I have to say, looks a little like an oversized frazzle. It does Doesn't look it? like a, an oversized frazzle because it's, stri it's a stripe of the duck yeah. in the middle and then potato on each side. In my book, The World Cup of Everything, which chooses the best crisps, the best chocolate, all that stuff, I went into the history of lots of the brands uh, and discovered the name of the man who invented the machine that puts the stripes on frazzles. Oh, hang on. We've got some cabbage and some... So that's the garlic grilled hispy cabbage. Wow. That's a vegetable, uh, for Richard. Sure, for sure. Oh, I've seen one of those before. And those are... Ah, oh, superb. Thank you. Chips. Ah, oh, we're laughing here, aren't we? We are. Enjoy it. Thank you. So let's talk about your pie for a second. So it's, so it's coming, it's, 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 it's almost in like the shape of a ball. So it's like a kind of, like an individual pork pie, but slightly more rounded. But the key is the, the lid of it is essentially in the form of a pig's snout. It is. Uh, and there's two little holes, and I've got a little bit oh, of... Oh, you're going to pour that in. I've got, to, I've got to pour that in. Poor piggy. One of the things that comes across from reading, you know, when I, I read up on people, one of the uh, things that, we, that right. we have in common is an absolute desire for control okay. around life. Yeah. Um, as in, you like to know where you're going, how you're going to yeah. get back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a um, spontaneous human being. That's what's that about in your case? Um, I don't know. I. I mean, I think it's always been about the fact that. Uh, listen, this is how I've always rationalised it, and I'm sure it's not true. I think it's always been about the fact that I can't really see very well. So if I'm ever somewhere, I don't know where I am. You know, it's like if ever I go to a restaurant, I always desperately search to see if there's anywhere I can find it where the toilets are, because I know otherwise I'm going to be kind of lost on the way to them at some point. And so yeah, I'm always thinking, yeah, but how am I going to get back? I want to get home. The taxis come out here, uh, and basically, I just I know that I that I can get lost very, very, very easily. And so, is that specifically because of your eyesight? Well, listen, that's how I always rationalise it. But I suspect it's in my personality anyway. I mean, I'm always happier staying in than going out, really. But then, of course, when I go out, I love it. But that's why I haven't. You know, my best friend is the exact opposite. So she spends her whole life being much more spontaneous, and I spend my whole life saying, "Oh, I don't, well, I don't think so." Because if you think about it, it might be like half eleven, and I don't know if there's going to be a taxi, so maybe that's not right. So, but yeah, I, I, I like to um, new experiences. I, I, I find very difficult. Has anything bad ever happened? No, I don't think so. But I, I like to think that's because I'm very careful. <laughs> maybe that is because I plan. Because you attend to the detail. Yeah, exactly that. I attend to the. I talk about a bit about that in the, in the, the next book. Talk about people who plan and people who don't plan, and how they're drawn to each other and how people who plan don't tell the, per the unplanned person that they're doing the planning. They just So suddenly they'll have this magical weekend in Venice, you know, where every corner they turn, there's this extraordinary thing, and the spontaneous person is going, well, you see, this is life, and the person, the planning person goes, no, I've literally spent the last two weeks with guidebooks <laughs> making sure I knew exactly the route we were going to take. I am absolutely with yeah. you. I have a particular love for a properly written call sheet. Oh, should we but discuss the culture of the call sheet? I love a call sheet because I like to know where I'm going to be and when. Right, here's a, here's Should a, we explain what a call sheet is yes. to somebody who doesn't know? Course, no, so, when you, when so, you, so a call sheet, when you're doing a production, say I'm doing House of Games at the Riverside Studios, you get a massive bit of paper. Every single person who's on 
the show, cameras, lighting, everybody, what time they're supposed to turn up, what time lunch is going to be, what time first rehearsal is. So it's just an absolute schedule of the day, plus everyone's phone numbers, plus every prop that's needed. It's just it's the Bible of the day ahead. So it's the Bible of every single thing that's going to happen to you. Uh, and to me, that's just heaven. It's the first thing I always ask for, always just... Just what's the call sheet? Then I know. I know when I'm in makeup. I know how long that's supposed to take. I know if I've got 15 minutes time where I can have a rest. I know all of that. So that to me is... We, we, we once did a show where we filmed that in Mozambique. right? And to get to Mozambique, you had to fly to Johannesburg, then from Johannesburg to Maputo, then from Maputo to the coast, then from the coast onto the island. And um, we had contestants on it, and the production manager just going, one of the contestants just asked, you won't believe this. They said, could they have photographs of what the airports look like. Oh, so yes. that and, and I literally had to go, um, if you do have those, could I have those as well? And literally, so I knew every step of the way, I knew what it was going to look like, I knew what Johannesburg Airport was going to look like, and so I could do that whole journey safe in the knowledge that I wasn't going to be taken by surprise. It's terrible, isn't it? But you're the same. I, I, I am pretty much. Yeah. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. So you create loads of shows. Yeah. You were involved in Deal or No Deal. Yeah. Um, What was your role? Because Glenn... Mm, lovely Glenn Hugel, who I've just been working with last week. We're working on a new show together. Glenn was an actor before. Yeah, he was in Coronation Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's uh, yeah, he went to like he went to RADA when he was seventeen. Went to Oxford. <laughs> you know, he's like he can do everything, Glenn. So, uh, did, uh, whose idea was? Well, did on a deal. Funny enough, was 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 the end game of a Dutch lottery show, right? When there was literally just a sort of end game, and it was very sort of um, glamorous and plush, and we just we turned it into this big. Very, ba- very sort of in a shed in Bristol, uh, and you know, just turned it into a, a whole show essentially with Glenn as the banker, um, and also producing at the same time, which is a, yeah. quite a neat thing. The, he was so good at being the banker and producer, you could do things on that show. Like, so I'd be sitting. Sometimes I used to go and sit in the banker's 
office which was the most fun thing I ever did in telly right? and I would always like to say oh why didn't you offer this and they I mean, was he literally making it up or was there some algorithm there's, that there's, there's an algorithm which you have a bit of freedom within so he yeah. was playing the player as well as the right. numbers but I would say oh why didn't you offer this and Glenn would always do it and I think oh I must be good at this and then I thought no you're his boss you idiot <laughs> you're, so, you're literally going okay Rich says I have to offer eight grand anyway so, but, so you'd sit there and there'd be a new player out there and Noel would be chatting away and Glenn would go, oh my God, this audience, they're absolutely dead. Like the silence in the audience and you need a bit of atmosphere. So even before the first box is open, Glenn rings. So the phone rings in the studio, deal or no deal. Uh, Noel picks up and goes, hmm, unusual. The bankers, he goes, hello, Mr. Banker. Uh, and Glenn, because he'd always do the voice as well. He goes, hello, Noel. Um, and he's going, why are you calling me so early? And he goes, I just wanted to say, I have an observation to make. And Noel would look at the audience and go, he's got an observation to make. The banker's got an observation to make. And he goes, uh, what's your observation, banker? And the banker goes, I have to say, this is the ugliest audience we've ever had on the show. <laughs> and Noel goes, oh, I don't know to tell you this, but he says you're the ugliest audience we've ever had on the show. The whole audience goes, and for the rest of the episode, huge energy throughout the whole thing, just because he called them ugly. And like, sort of, so what a beautiful way to be able to produce a telly show, to literally ring the host, to call the audience ugly, and then suddenly the, uh, suddenly the show Direct line. I mean, yeah. the, the, as that show went on, Noel started to get a bit cosmic. Yeah. He, he started claiming, you know, some insight into how chance and the fates yeah. would work. Now, mm-hmm. forgive me while I editorialise for a moment. Yeah. It struck me as utter, utter spectral bollocks. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Well, listen, it's not the way I live my life. <laughs> okay. I'm something of a rationalist. I love a bit of magic. Yeah. You know, I understand religious people. I get it 100%. I absolutely understand that it's really important to, to believe in things that are bigger than us. I think it's, you know, it, 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 it enlivens the soul and the mind. I don't believe in any of that stuff, but it's absolutely fine. Um, I felt that, listen, I mean, he was, un, he, was, he was given a massive, massive, massive hit show. So I, I would probably believe in, uh, in <laughs> karma and the cosmos if, uh, if that had happened to me. <coughs> yeah, it wasn't for me. Um, and um, do you think it was to the detriment of the show at all? Not particularly. I think it'd be half of that show to have been much more successful than it was. Yeah. To be honest, it was so huge for so long. With Pointless, famously, you were standing in uh, because you have to play out every game show because you, nobody ever understands when you want to sell it. Yeah, yeah, when you want to sell it to the BBC. Um, and then it was suggested that you actually partner with yeah. Alexander, Alexander Armstrong, yeah. who you'd been at university with, but I can't imagine you ran in the same set. Not really. I mean, I, I mean, I'd sort of seen more of him since because he was suddenly in the comedy world, and I knew who he was. So we'd bump into each other every now and again, and keep saying, oh, "We must, we must work together someday." Uh, yeah, I didn't know that got you. Yeah, I know. How many, how many days a year do you actually work together? Uh, quite a lot. So we've done, I think, fifteen hundred, one thousand five hundred episodes now. I think, um, and they're like an hour each. So I mean, that's one thousand five hundred hours, which is a lot of time. I spent with him, uh, and genuinely never had a single day's, single minutes argument. We never, we literally just we, we we rub along very well. But yeah, weird to think. You, I mean, you know, I, did, I pitched a million shows and piloted a million shows, uh, and then suddenly this one sort of, you know, turns you into Bob Holness, which is a very peculiar thing to 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 happen midway through a career. Particularly for someone who has said very clearly that you suffer massively from performance anxiety. Uh, as in, you don't, it doesn't fill you with joy. I mean, oh. I'm sure Xander kind of, you know, oh, flicks his cuffs, it. pulls yeah, his jacket, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, showtime, even if it is the same 40 people yeah. who've been in it since this morning. Yeah. You, I get the impression, hate it when it kicks off or are terrified of it. Well, I'm an introvert, that's for sure. 
and certainly when, when, when it started, I was very, very frightened of it. An audience does nothing for me. It really doesn't. I mean, I'm very used to them now, and it's absolutely fine, and I like it. If, the second I get a laugh, I'm very happy. But the, there's no, I know, I know stand-ups, and they get a thrill when there's an audience. They walk out, and you can see the adrenaline. I don't have that. You know, I like it when people are laughing. Uh, that's nice. But on point is, it's nice because I'm a sidekick, and I like being a sidekick. That's my chosen uh, area of expertise. Uh, but if it's me in front, or if I did something like the first time I went on, have I got news for you? That's scary to me. You know, Pointless very quickly became a show that I was comfortable with and again that thing of, I know, I know what's going to happen. The call sheet is very clear. Yeah, exactly. The call sheet is telling me where I need to be and when. Um, but something like Have I Got News? The first time I did Have I Got News For You, I was so nervous and it went well and I was really pleased it went well. I just remember coming out of the kitchen the next morning and just bursting into tears because I'd been so, I'd worked myself up so much and it had gone well and I was so, it was tears of kind of happiness but relief and all that kind of thing because it's, yeah, it's not my I'm not a show-off particularly like that. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because I know lots of stand-ups, it's a certain type of being a show-off. And it's not for me. I don't get that buzz of an audience adoring me. Um, how much of the patter that you and Zander do, do you work out in advance? You don't, do you? <laughs> as, as a percentage? Yeah. Zero. Zero, zero percentage. He has one line written, which is, he's my pointless friend, and he just does, does a little joke that someone writes that. And that's it. Everything else is just us mucking about like a like a radio show people go but you must rehearse you do it is you know radio shows mm. don't they're just people talking to each other and that's why people have warmed to the show i think because you've got a format and you've got a show and it takes you from a to b but you're not watching it unless you're enjoying the company and i think you enjoy the company because we're quite amateurish and you can tell it's not slick and you can tell it we're not we don't have a slick bone in either of our bodies to be fair at what point did you decide to write a novel because you know this is the Thursday Murder Club, which is out now. Shall I describe it, or would you prefer to? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a crime novel. I'm, 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 again, like the telly, I make telly that I would watch. I wrote the book that I read. I read a lot of crime fiction. And this was set in a... I went to a beautiful retirement village um, a couple of years ago. You know, like rolling English hills, lakes, all sorts of things. Looking like for it on your own behalf? Restaurant. No, it was with a friend's <laughs> mum and this, that, that. Although, you would spend 20 minutes there and you'd want to move in. Beautiful swimming pool. It's got absolutely got the lot. Um, and I looked at my phone, and there was no. I had no mobile reception. And all three of the writers will tell you, please give me somewhere where there's no mobile reception because you know mobile phones are sport thrillers because you can pretty much get out of any trouble. Anyway, so I looked at that and I thought, oh, it'd be a good place for a murder, wouldn't it? This place, looking around me, how lovely it was. And then you meet the you know the people who live there, you know, mainly in their kind of seventies and eighties, and you sort of talk to them a bit about the things they've done. And you think, well, if there was a murder here, this lot would solve it. And that's the moment I thought, OK, because I've been waiting to write a book for so long, so I've always been a writer. Uh, and, you know, just, it, it takes a long time to write a novel, and it's hard, and all that kind of stuff, and I just hadn't found the space or the time. And I had that idea. I thought, well, look, just write a bit of it. So I wrote the first 20,000 words, and I just thought, OK, I've got to, I've just got to keep on with this. And I did it. I didn't tell a soul I was doing it. You literally didn't tell anybody? No. Not even your, your closest friend? No. I said, oh, look, I'm just writing something about it. You never showed anybody a single word of it. Because like, you know what it's like when someone says they're writing a novel, you just think, yeah. You create it. I mean, some people do it because it's like, it, it, it tell everybody they're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a way to encourage them to finish. And also the thing of being a TV presenter, sometimes you think, oh, if I went to a publisher and said I've got a chapter, they'll say, oh, we'd love to publish your novel. But I, that's not, that wasn't for me. I just thought, write the whole thing, finish the whole thing, show it to someone who really knows what they're talking about, look them in the whites of the eyes and say, is it actually okay? And I did with my agent, Juliet Mushin, she's brilliant. So, you know, I hadn't shown it to anyone. I said, well, look, will you just take a look at it? And she said, no, just, I know you're worried, but that's a proper book. 
You've, you've written an actual book that people are going to want to buy. Uh, and so from that moment on, it's, it's been an absolute roller coaster. We, we sold it here, we sold it all around the world, which is nice because they don't know who I am. You've already said you just... Fi- I mean, lit- when did you finish the, the follow-up to this? The follow-up, I, I finished... I was writing it through the pandemic. At, at the start of... Uh, literally in February, I thought I'm going to take the next six months off writing. Uh, sorry, I'm going to take the next six months off um, making TV and write. Uh, and, and, then, and, then, and lo and behold, suddenly there was a pandemic, so I feel slightly responsible. So, yeah, I, I, I've been writing all the way through the pandemic, and I finished just at the end of... I finished just at the end of July because I had to start filming House of Games again, so I finished just then and there'll, there'll be other drafts and stuff and hopefully by Christmas the final draft will be done and I'll have to start the third one and is it all the same characters give or take those who haven't died everybody who survives the first book uh, either alive or at liberty returns for the second book which is lovely thank you it's because I, I just get to hang out with them all again and you know throw them you know even worse things happen to them in the second one yeah so all the same people are back which is, which is lovely and presumably I know the deal was for two books yeah um, and I imagine in your head is onwards. Yeah, if, you, I would, get, if you, I, you would like to carry on. Yeah, I would like to. I mean, you know, my the only way we make money at Endemol is is in returnable series. So MasterChef has been going. I mean, twenty five years longer even, and goes around the world. It's returnable, returnable, returnable. And the idea of writing a novel, and this is not a cynical, cynical thing at all, by the way, it's just the way my brain works. The idea of writing a novel, finishing it, selling it, everyone loves it, and then you've got to write a completely different one. <laughs> you think, oh, but what if people don't like the next one? Whereas this group of characters who I love, uh, so I've done two, I've definitely, I've, I have zero enthusiasm for getting rid of them because I, I just want to keep writing this stuff that's going to happen to them in the next few books. So the idea of writing five or six of these would absolutely... Thrill me. Although, just to throw a challenge to you, one of the issues of setting it in, mm-hmm. a, you know where I'm going, yeah. in a retirement yeah. home, is older. Yeah. Uh, some of your characters are going to be called away, are they not? They're going yeah, well, to die en route. A natural cause. I certainly gave them an extra couple of years in the second draft. They were, they were, both, they were all a couple of years older. So, ah. the, the, the working title for the second book was, so this one's called The Thursday Murder Club, and the, the working title was The Following Thursday. So, it literally carries on and the events of the first book mean the events of the second book are inevitable yeah. so it's called the, it's not going to be called that now but yeah it literally happens it starts the day after literally you are straight back the day after and the next one will be as well so uh, I've got a good five or six of them and you know <laughs> okay. then they'll only be in the early 80s um, I'm picking up my phone only because the dessert menu oh, okay lovely is on See, here dessert. I don't know whether you looked at the dessert menu as well very interesting when I watch MasterChef and they make puddings the yeah. thing that infuriates me more than anything you know when they have poached pear they think oh come on I mean where's the what's the point in that well it has to be said on almost all the desserts the the classic refrain is both in pro and amateur they concentrate on the main course yeah and then they put a few creamy things in a bowl fine by me well it's you know you get taught to make a panna cotta on day one in cookery school yeah panna cotta I can uh, I can probably I could probably live without but um, yeah anything rich um, and so a, a dark chocolate pudding that's going to make you very happy yeah listen a milk chocolate pudding would be better because <laughs> milk chocolate is better than dark chocolate as we know well we do but uh, malt I love malt and chocolate to get well listen look at the Maltesers we, we come full circle if you're one of those people who spends hours in the kitchen knocking out culinary masterpieces, you'll want to be properly dressed for it. I know I do. Or perhaps you just want to convince your friends you're that sort of person without going to all the trouble of actually cooking. Well, now you can. 
how, you ask? By wearing the terrific official Logotastic out-to-lunch apron, of course, in gorgeous durable denim. It's so good, you'll want to go out in it. And if you do go out, let's face it, it's tough out there, so take your favourite podcast with you in the sturdy out-to-lunch travel cup, the perfect receptacle for your hot beverage of choice. See, not only will our lunch-lubricated chats warm your ears, we'll also warm the rest of you. And when you get home and you've washed your out-to-lunch travel cup, try it with the out-to-lunch tea towel so soft you'll be snuggling up with it at bedtime. To see the range of merch and catch them all, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. Want to spend even more time with me? The paperback of my latest book, My Last Supper, is out now. Join me as I explore the landscape of our last meals on Earth, available from all good bookshops and a few bad ones too. But for now, let's go back out to lunch. I'm just wondering whether, you know, this has been life in media. Yeah. Um, but there's an interest, as I've said in, in The Ordinary, in the, in the way that life is lived. Yeah. Uh, whether you've ever been driven towards the political. Not the really. The small P. I mean, yeah, the, the small P, absolutely. I'm obsessed with it. You know, I'm you? obsessed with how we live. Um, but I'm obsessed with how people express themselves politically these days, which isn't, I would say, almost 100% counterproductive. I've always thought that. Uh, in which element? Uh, every side. All we hear from, we're incredibly polarised. All yeah. we hear from are, 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 you know, from right and left. And I absolutely get it. By the way, I'm not, if you're far right or far left, you say whatever you want. It's absolutely your right, you know? Mm-hmm. And we always need people shouting from the barricades. However, we do also need people who are trying to sort of force uh, change. And I think the way people are trying to force change at the moment doesn't work. You know, I do think that fighting the far right with the far left doesn't work. It's proved it hasn't worked over years and years and years. You know, you know, if you think of how far right the world has lurched since Twitter was launched, you think it's very possible that the way we're doing Twitter from the it's left not is not working, particularly. You know, you would get mocked for coming from anywhere close to the centre, which I understand. Um, but if you are talking from the centre, it doesn't mean you're from the centre. If you're talking from the centre, sometimes what you're saying is, I believe it's important to talk from the centre to get the thing that I want, you know? And so if you say, oh, yeah, but you're a neo, you're this, that, the other, don't forget this, don't forget that, you think, yeah, maybe I'm just, maybe my take, maybe my position is one of pragmatism. It does strike me you'd have made a brilliant sophologist or campaign I would love political, that. you know, consultant in the, it's kind of American mm. model. I would literally, you, like a behind-the-scenes person in the, yeah. Data like crunching and be, watching. Mm, like West Wing, I would be, or Veep, <laughs> just behind the scenes of one of those. That would have been my perfect job. And that's why I did politics and sociology. I genuinely think two subjects which were mocked when we were at school and which we absolutely lack these days are sociology and media studies. If you want to understand, well, listen, doctors and engineers, go up, do that, because that's really important. But everybody else, that's how we make sense of our world. That's how we work out the lies we're being sold. That's how we work out how the rich are getting much, much, much richer uh, and the poor are getting much, much, much poorer. It's media studies, sociology. You absolutely nail those two things. You can't see the world in the same way again. We share an interest in my... I I often apologise for it in metrics. Oh. I apologise for it because I think other people roll their eyes at me. Are these good tools or are they distracting? No, they're not distracting at all. They're completely essential. 
we, we're in a sort of postmodern world where they said, oh, actually, you know, the, the, worst, the worst phrase in the whole world is lies down lie statistics, right? Because it gets rid of statistics. And you can see over coronavirus, do you know what? Turns out they were important, <laughs> right? And I will watch TV on a particular night and I'll see what's trending on Twitter, right? I'll see a show that everyone is going crazy for. Like the whole world is talking about this show. You look at the overnights, you look at the figures, see, nobody watched it, right? So that's two completely separate realities, one of which is a bubble, one of which is not. Okay, and the one with the metrics is the one that's not a bubble. Now, it's loads of stats that don't work, definitively, uh, but there's loads that do. And if you can look at statistics and you understand the reason for those statistics, that's the way to understand the world. And it's very right brain, left brain, and I get it, but there really, really is a place for numbers. They tell you a story, they genuinely tell you a story. And in this world of fake news and all this kind of stuff, if we had a populace who understood how to read statistics and understood, had done a bit of sociology and looked at statistical modelling, we would be in a much better place because you go, oh, that's true, that's not true. You know? And that truth and that, 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 uh, that, that falsity, they do exist. They're real things. You know, it's just there's so much noise around them. Everything else you've done has been a collaborative project. Yeah. TV is a collaborative project. Oh, yeah. It is about the TV, even if you're presenting. Even if it's called Richard Osman's House Again, 100%. There's a call sheet with a lot of names on it. Correct. And yes, in publishing, publishing is a collaborative project, but this isn't. It's just you. Yeah. Does that fill you with, well, joy? Or do you just think, well, I got myself into this, I better get on with it? It's interesting because this bit of it is a collaborative project because suddenly you've got a whole team at Penguin publicists and editors and this that and the other and so you sort of feel like you're all and you all want the book to be successful so it feels like you're a gang and there's lots of meetings but the actual sitting down and writing when there's no pressure and it's just me and a screen and this is going to sound awful it's me and this, it's the kind of six main characters in that book who I just get to hang out with for the whole year and that feels like a bit of a gang if that makes sense which is ridiculous but that's why I write characters I think who I kind of love quite so much because I've got to hang out with them all year you know, those are the people, those, those, that's, that's my company. Well, I think all that remains for me to say is, um, Richard Osman and your six imaginary friends, Aww. thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. Thank you, Jay. It's been an absolute pleasure. It has. It's been a joy. We've even got dessert wine and you've got Maltesers, so it's all, it's all oh, sorted. What a day <laughs> to be alive upon this day. I could eat Tom Kerridge's cooking all day. And what fun to share it with Richard, who's a fascinating man. And The Thursday Murder Club is a cracking novel. I really recommend it. Don't forget to do all the business to help keep the show going. Review us, share us, you know the stuff. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Ream. And the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I have fish and chips and a total hoot with comedian and Bake Off Extra Slice presenter, it's Joe Brand. As Paris Hilton says, only fat people drink Diet Coke, and that's what I'm drinking. Cheers. Cheers.